Our guest speaker today is not a stranger to anyone who's been a part of this church for very long. He is a Sunday school teacher at First Baptist Church in Shreveport, and he is a committed attorney fighting often for ACLU cases. We are always glad to have him here and thank him for coming. Would you help me welcome John Hodge? I always enjoy coming to your warm and welcoming congregation. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, Please invite me again, uh, even if I say something that you disagree with. Please invite me. You must be the only Unitarian congregation in America that regularly invites a Baptist to fill your pulpit. You know... Uh, When I was dressing this morning, I decided to be a southern gentleman and wear a seersucker with white bucks. When I moved to Shreveport about 20 years ago, I was walking downtown. I had just come out of court. Uh, At that time, I even uh, wore a Panama hat with my uh, seersucker and white bucks. And this young woman came up to me. I I was in my 20s at that time. And she came up to me, and she grabbed me by the shoulder, and she said, Sir, and I thought, well, this is is going pretty well already. She said, Sir, I just want to let you know I want to comment about your clothes. And I said, go on. She said, "Um, you dress just like my grandfather. All I could think to say to this young woman was, uh, lady, that's not the image I'm going for. (laughs) The title of my sermon this morning is Polygamist, Priest, Preachers, the Pope, and Other Problems that Begin with the Letter P. Um, Because I have perfected the art of a 15 to 20 minute sermon, I did not have time to cover the Pope, (laughs) so I just omitted him from my sermon. I begin this morning by asking a series of rhetorical questions. What is faith? and Why does it matter? Because you see, I want to examine the role of faith with current events and polygamist, priest, preachers, and the Pope and other problems that begin with the letter P involve the intersection of faith with current events. So what is faith? I would be remiss in my Baptist duties if I did not quote the scriptures. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By its very definition, faith is not something that you can prove It is an article of belief. Does faith matter? You bet your bottom dollar it does. Our differing views of faith shape our lives. It influences current events. It always will. Now, you will hear many Christians say from time to time, I have faith in the message of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? What Jesus do they believe in? 
Do they believe in Jesus as a messianic prophet who believes in the second coming? Do they believe in the Jesus who is a subversive revolutionary who scorns the rich and sows discontent for the peasants? Or do they view and believe the message of Jesus and have faith of the Jesus that was the arch enemy of the established religious hierarchy, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Incidentally, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were keepers of the law, and we learned as little kids in vacation Bible school in the fourth grade, it stuck with me, this trusty little mnemonic device to tell the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. One believed in the afterlife and the other did not. And the Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife, and they were sad, you see. (laughs) I can't remember, you know, what I ate for supper last night, but I can remember from fourth grade the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, it wasn't until I was a teenager that I learned that the... uh, that, that an epistle was not a female apostle. <laughs> I got those confused in my own mind, but I digress. Uh, what, other, what other messages of Jesus do Christians have faith in? Do they believe in the message of Jesus that is the visionary proponent of indiscriminate love, tolerance, forgiveness, submission, pacifism? Do they believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do they believe that Jesus is God? Do they believe in the Trinity? Lest you think that Christians are the only ones with differing views of faith, think again. There's this little place called the Middle East, and they're fighting not over Christian differences, but they're fighting over land that each side believes was promised to them by the same God, the God of Abraham. Both the Arabs and the Jews the Arabs and the Jews both worship the God of Abraham. Faith matters. Faith influences our lives every day. Faith influences your life. Now, I know you're saying to yourself, at least some of you, young man, I'm a Unitarian. I don't have faith. (laughs) If you were here for my sermon last year, I um, spoke about Um, what would Jesus do? And I had everyone in the congregation imagine that they were a Christian and actually believe that they are a Christian for 20 minutes. That's what I asked everybody to do. It wasn't that big of a sacrifice. Um, I wanted you to be a Christian, and I used my term, because we all define Christianity a little bit differently, I used the Baptist term for Christianity, that you must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and that Jesus is the Lord and Master of your life. For 20 minutes, I asked everybody in the room to do that, and for 20 minutes, everybody did. (laughs) But it was a trick. You should never believe somebody that's a Baptist, an outsider, coming into your pulpit. You see, Baptists have this doctrine called once saved, always saved. (laughs) And so if you were saved for 20 minutes, you have an eternity of salvation. You couldn't get rid of your salvation if you tried. So now that I've established that we're all born-again Christians, faith matters to you.
Now, what are the problems with faith? Faith can have good things, but faith and our differences can have bad things that are associated with them. And I want to focus our attention on how faith has become a problem in our society, or alternatively, how our society's response to an expression of faith by one of its citizens can become a problem. So the first problem that I'm going to identify with the letter P is polygamy. We are all familiar with the story in Texas about how there was an anonymous phone call by somebody, and the state of Texas ended up seizing 400 kids from a polygamist sect uh, called Yearning for Zion. These people uh, were involved in plural marriages, and so... I wanted to learn more about polygamy, and I got onto Google and stumbled across a site, a pro-polygamy blog called Polygamy Now. <laughs> it, it's when you leave here, your house of worship, please go to Google and put in Polygamy Now or PolygamyNowBlogspot.com. You can chat with polygamists in America. Some of them live in religious sects. Some of them don't. They're just average, normal people. Polygamy Now is run by a three-person marriage composed of a guy named Martin. He's a 59-year-old computer programmer uh, who apparently works for Microsoft. Um, Then there's a wife named Karen, a 62-year-old retired teacher and mother of three, There's a wife named Lisa, a 47-year-old mother and health educator, and (laughs) writes Lisa in her blog profile, I wasn't looking for a polygamous relationship. It just happened. (laughs) How does a polygamous relationship just happen? What I found most fascinating about this website was the personal section. (laughs) Um, They have a blog where you can exchange personals to meet your soulmate. And a few weeks ago, I found the following post. And it's from a guy named Charles and Clarice. And they wrote, "Uh, Clarice and I are looking for a second wife. We live in Wisconsin, and we have a huge new home. Charles is an engineer, and Clarice works from home. Charles is is a Mormon fundamentalist independent, and Clarice is a Catholic. We have five children here. We are open to more, just like any other blog that you would find from a single site. Here's another post from a couple that posted one just a couple of weeks ago looking for a sister wife. I I quote from the post, Recently, after much prayer, we decided that polygamy was for us. I know many are curious, so I will say that it was me, Brandy, who first thought of the idea. I saw all the practical benefits as well as the fact that it is in line with our Christian beliefs. Although both of us are Christian, we are not specifically pursuing polygamy for religious purposes. Both of us believe that we as believers should strive to the highest Christian ideal, but that at the same time we recognize that we often miss the mark, and that is where grace comes in. These are normal people, people that you might work with that have pursued pursued a polygamous lifestyle. Faith matters. How we as society 
respond to people's faith matter. Now, some people in this room believe that we should leave the polygamist alone and respect their relationships. Others honestly believe that no, that is harmful to the children involved of the marriage. There are pros and cons to both sides of this story, but make no mistake, faith matters. My own view is that the state should not should oh, excuse me, my own view is that the state should only get involved if underage children themselves are spouses in the plural marriages. But I can honestly see both sides of the story. Faith matters. Another problem that begins with P, preachers and priests politicking in the pulpit. Recent example of that would be Jeremiah Wright, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, and the Catholic priest who followed him in the pulpit of Senator Barack Obama's church. Now, Senator Jeremiah, excuse me, uh, Reverend Jeremiah Jeremiah Wright's uh, sermon was attacked not because of the politicking that was involved in the sermon, but because of the content of the sermon, and because of my respect. For you as a congregation, I can't even repeat what that man said. I would not have been in that church had that man said those things about my country. But that man had a right to say what he said. The Catholic priest who followed um, uh, this incident, mocking Senator Hillary Clinton, was plainly politicking in the pulpit. And the outrage was so severe that Senator Barack Obama resigned from his own church of 20 years. Now, here's the problem with politicking in the pulpit. Churches are free to endorse any particular message, and they can even endorse a candidate if they want. But if they do that, they give up their tax-exempt status. If the Roman Catholic Church wants to endorse candidate A for public office, I will support the church's right to do that. But they cannot use tax-exempt status and continue, uh, in my example, to endorse a candidate. Now, last month, the Wall Street Journal reported that there is a move among the religious right to challenge the IRS's restriction. A group called the Alliance Defense Fund, which incidentally has an office here in Shreveport, Louisiana, and a full-time lawyer named Mike Johnson, who is their lawyer, that group is going to try to challenge the IRS's prohibition from mingling church and state. Here's here's what uh, the spokesperson said. It was quoted in the Wall Street Journal last month. We are going to prompt pastors and say to them, you know, we really believe that they need to challenge some of the things, some of the thinking that is going on in our society, which is that separation of church and state doctrine, that we really need to preach the Bible on these issues and apply them to our lives. Well, in the year uh, 1992, when Bill Clinton was running for president, there was a church in New York that took out an ad that said, voting for Bill Clinton is a sin. The IRS said, you have every right in America to say what you want to say. We're not trying to limit your speech, but you can't have your tax-exempt status and use church resources to pay for this overtly political message. 
In the year 2000, a federal appellate court unanimously ruled that the IRS acted legally when it stripped that New York church of its tax-exempt status. And ironically, the panel was composed of three Republican judges appointed by Ronald Wilson Reagan, one of whom was William Buckley's brother. (laughs) This is not a radical concept. Keep them separate. The third problem that begins with P is partisan faith-based initiatives. In 2001, shortly after he became president, following a contested election, President George W. Bush created the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. This program funds churches and church schools. An example of the program is $660,000 of your tax dollars is going from the Department of Labor to a program called the Jericho Program. And this program is a faith-based initiative that tries to help prisoners assimilate back into society with the assistance of faith. Allowing religious groups to hire and fire based on religion when operating federally funded social service programs is an, is an affront to federal and state civil rights laws, but yet this is expressly permitted pursuant to an executive order signed by the President of the United States. Now, to show you that my speech is nonpartisan in nature, um, this was a program started by Republican President George Bush, but on Friday of last week, Senator Barack Obama said he wants to expand faith-based funding. My friends, both my Republican president and Democratic Senator Barack Obama are just wrong on that point. A religious organization can work with a partner um, as a partner with government, but it cannot constitutionally accept tax dollars if there is an overtly sectarian approach to their ministry. The fourth problem that begins with P is public prayer sponsored by the state. Every year we read about some high school principal or some high school coach that is composing a prayer, reciting a prayer before or during graduation or a high school football game. My friends, I'm not against prayer. I'm against state-sponsored prayer. I want bureaucrats out of the business of crafting prayers. And the last problem that begins with the letter P, politicians. (laughs) Using their faith, politicians of both political parties seem to have an insatiable desire to force all of us to have the same faith as they do. An example was in the state of Oklahoma, not far from the Arklatex, we get all of their Oklahoma citizens to come gamble at our local boats. So this is not far from home. Uh, A woman named Sally Kern, she's a state representative in the state of Oklahoma. And she said, uh, she got in trouble when she said that the nation was founded as a Christian nation. And then she she went on to say that gays and lesbians are more dangerous than terrorists. (laughs) Here is her quote. 
You know, we have this dumb idea nowadays that tolerance means everything is created equal. Well, everything is not created equal. We see that in many, we see that in many areas of our life. You know, things are just not equal. For example, all religions are not created equal. Then she suggested a conspiracy theorist. Theory. You know, they always go for that Mr. Grassy Knoll conspiracy theory. They are trying to get us, you know. Here's what she said. You know, guys, uh, excuse me, you know that gays are infiltrating city councils. Take Eureka Springs, Arkansas, where the passion play is held. Have you heard that the city council of Eureka Springs is now controlled by gays? You know, it's just not a lifestyle that's good for this nation. Matter of fact, studies show no society that has totally embraced homosexuality has lasted more than, you know, a couple of decades. So it's the death knell for this country. And here's what she said. Here's the last thing she said. I honestly think it's the biggest threat our nation has, even more so than terrorism or Islam. (laughs) Faith matters. And how you express that faith matters. And how society responds to that faith matters. Now let me tell you about my faith in our concluding moments. Here's what my faith teaches me. It's what the Bible says. Jesus teaches and the Bible teaches that our Lord is about love, compassion, acceptance, embracing the socially unacceptable. Some Christians have no problem saying what would Jesus do in certain situations. Some even find it easy to decipher God's will. But here's the problem. I don't, I don't have a problem with somebody deciphering God's will for their own life. I object, however, when they declare that they know God's will for my life. <clears throat> the problem with many conservative Christians is that they claim that God's truth is knowable, that they know it, and that they are able to reduce it to legislative form. Here's what I know about Jesus. He cared for the poor. He did not condemn the woman caught in adultery. He prayed alone, not in public. He commanded us to love our enemies. He preached peace. He ate, drank, and lived with the tax collectors and the sinners, the lowlifes and outcasts of his day, while reserving condemnation for the religious leaders. He told his disciples not to oppose healing work of those outside of their ranks or his followers. And again and again, he reminded us to care for the poor. That's my faith. Now, how can we confront the problems that begin with the letter P? I'll be very brief, and it'll be my concluding remarks. Number one, no religious discrimination. Government-funded jobs must be open to all qualified applicants, regardless of their opinion about religion. Number two, end-of-life care. Among the most personal decisions that we can make involve end-of-life care. These decisions are best made personally by individuals and their families, not by politicians who seek to impose a religious agenda. Number three, reproductive health. 
All Americans must be free to make choices concerning their own health in keeping with their own personal belief. Creating laws that are grounded in religious belief conflicts with the doctrine of separation of church and state. Decisions about family planning and emergency contraceptives should be resolved privately based upon personal beliefs. Individuals may look to their own faith as they make these choices, but the government must never mandate that all Americans follow the tenets of one religious viewpoint. Number four, we want a democracy, not a theocracy. Number five, academic integrity. Public schools must provide children with the best possible education without preferring one religious tradition over another. Number six, here's a radical concept, sound science. Advancing the health and well-being of all Americans requires medical research and policy that is grounded in sound science. Number seven, respect for all families. Some religious leaders and politicians want us to use the government to define marriage in a way that favors one religious tradition over another. The federal marriage amendment would discriminate against the growing number of religious groups that perform same-sex unions. Happy, healthy families deserve respect and should be free to live according to their own beliefs. And my last part of my own faith-based initiative is number eight, to worship or not. Our private choice of worship to or not to worship should be protected. Government should not prefer one religion over another, another religion or religion in general over no religion at all. And with that, my friends, I conclude my remarks.